Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. I would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Tongva and the Shumash on which this podcast is being recorded. I think it's important to acknowledge the land because as an African-American girl raised during the 1980s in Georgia, I never heard the traditional names of these territories. In high school, the only reference to indigenous people in my classroom history book was a painfully brief mention of the Cherokee and the Trail of Tears. As truth and justice seekers, the What's Up with Docs podcast team would like to take this opportunity to commit ourselves to the struggle against systems of oppression that have dispossessed indigenous people of their lands, have attempted to erase their histories, and deny their rights to self-determination. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, no one is free until we all are free. In this week's episode, I speak with the Executive Director of the California LGBT Arts Alliance and filmmaker, Dante Alencastre. In our conversation, we discuss his coming to the United States, the early days of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, his past projects, and his current film, AIDS Diva, The Legend of Connie Norman. This week's episode song is one of Connie's favorites, C.C. Pinson's Finally. Here's our conversation, which was recorded in June 2020. Um, so we met through um, Southeastern European Film Festival, which happens every year here in Los Angeles. Um, and our fabulous leader, um, Vera. Uh, I think we met initially when we were both on the pitch panel. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So um, for those of you who don't know, Southeast European Film Festival is a festival that happens here every year that showcases Southeast European films. Um, I've been working with the festival for uh, almost almost five years now. Um, I started out being on the pitch panel and then became a mentor for the, for the Accelerator Lab um, fellows, which both includes documentary and narrative. And then um, now I'm on the advisory board. And I also did a few stints as uh, the feature on the features jury. And my fearless comrade, Ronell, um, was on the features journey jury this year. Um, so Dante, tell, tell me about how you got involved with CFES. Uh Well, you know, because I also, my side gig, uh, is to run a small LGBTQ arts nonprofit. I'm the executive director. I've been, I was appointed two years ago by my board, and I was on the board like maybe four, uh, three years before that. And that's how I met uh, Vera because uh, we we are both grantees from the Arts Division. So you know the grantees always have like a, a get together, maybe twice a year. And we met, and of course, you know, she's so charming, and she kept asking me to participate. And I said, well, how many LGBTQ films are you <laughs> programming? Okay, a good question. So when she started programming stuff, um, then she would ask me to, you know, to come to the screenings, and then that's how the invitation to become part of the pitch came about. Every year, for those of you who don't know, CFest has an accelerator lab, um, which they actually is really unique in that it combines, they have the documentary and the narrative folks together. And even though these filmmakers, you know, clearly have different needs, they all are 
learning how to tell um, tell a story. And it's a lab for people who are um, who are doing films that who are either Southeast European themselves or of Southeast European descent, but also for those who are doing films that are centered in, in Southeast Europe. So you mentioned the California LGBT Arts Alliance. So what what does that organization do? Well, our our, our um, mission statement statement is to nurture, promote, and produce uh, LGBTQ art and artists. We're, we're particularly focused on art and artists who are into promoting uh, social justice, cultural equity, uh, accessibility, and also the preservation of our queer history. We're, uh, we are multidisciplinary arts uh, program organization. So what we did, for instance, last year we did uh, two programs for the Pro West Homewood. One was uh, at the LGBT Center, we did a show called uh, uh, Color Bonita, which dealt with uh, the Latino man experience of coming out, faith, family, acceptance, and all of that. And then we did actually, uh, which was a discovery, we discovered a genderqueer artist from New York who lived in the 70s and 80s and who died of AIDS. His name was Stephen Barbell. So we did in conjunction with the One Archives, they were doing the exhibit of photographs of him. And because he used to do street art, so his art, only when he was documented by photography, you can see it now. And then we did, uh, we brought the curator who's writing a book on him from Chicago, uh, and he did a, a whole lecture on that. Then we have also done uh, film screening tours on trans youth and family acceptance uh, in San Diego, Coachella, Indio, East LA, Pacoima, places where there's usually no LGBT center or no queer programming that's reaching the community. So that's what we do. So let me ask you, uh, you're from Peru. See, si, yes. You can still hear my accent after 45 years of living here. So what brought you to the U.S. way back when? I was 13 when I came to New York. Uh, well, you know, uh, actually Peru had just been, uh, there was a, a military coup, and which was backed by Russia or the Soviet Union at the time, and Cuba, and they were trying to, you know, make Peru the next stronghold for communism. Right. So for the, I was going to say for the young people, um, that was back during the Cold War when um, the U.S. was against Russia and the world was pretty much uh, divided into communism versus, well, some would say democracy. I say capitalism. Russia or the U or the Soviet Union, rather, and the U.S. would give funding to um, different countries who, in theory, align with their their political beliefs and um central and south america um was a really kind of a hotbed of that yeah that's right so my mom being a nurse uh you know there's always been a shortage of nurses here in the u.s and at the time uh, a friend of hers said dora that was her name she said they're recruiting nurses in the, in the u.s my mom was a staunch peruvian she didn't speak english uh, she never wanted to emigrate and you know, this is a story about immigrants, you know, really. But she she not, she knew in her heart of hearts that she had a little boy. Well, I wasn't a little boy, but I was I was different than all other little boys. 
and I have been already pointed out by my uncles for being a, a machista kind of country society. And she said, mm -mm, my son is not going to be happy here, especially if it comes to like military school and mandatory, all of that, and you know, conscription and no. So she came, she came to New York, uh, hired by a hospital and had to learn the language, you know, and had to get a license as a registered nurse. And she brought me and, uh, that's the story, you know, that's one of the stories of immigration that we have. She sacrificed herself, her family, her friends, all of that to give me a better life, to protect me and give me a chance to thrive. Is that why you think you're drawn to um, stories about um, folks who are trans? Because I mean, looking at your, like looking at your filmography, you do focus on um, trans folks a lot, but really about uh, people who are seeking to be true to themselves. Well, I think I'm drawn to powerful female identified folks. From the very beginning when I did my first short, which was about 15 years ago, and I'm at, I heard my first uh, trans friend, who she's a friend of mine, activist in Peru, uh, I, I was just like, you know, mesmerized by how much we having we had in common because we were around the same age, and she had, of course, lived in Peru her transition, and she had been, you know, abused and oppressed and jailed and assaulted, all these kind of things. But she, at that, when I met her, she was in a place of uh, family reconciliation. But we had. A, but we had a lot of things in common. I, you know, I'm not gonna say I don't see gender because I do see the gender because when I walk with them down the street in Peru, we get taunted, we get insulted, we don't, you know, even nowadays, you know, when I go back. And they have become my, you know, my intentional family. And I think my stories come out of that. I think I'm really drawn to very powerful, radical, you know, badass women. And that's how I see them. You know, and they're my muses and my my mentors and, like I said, my family. You mentioned the Peruvian um, woman who's an activist. What's her name? Her name is Gabriela Marino. So she runs her salon. She takes care of her mom, which is her 90s. Every time I go back to Peru, I, I, I get to see her. We get to have ice cream and eat out. And she runs her small nonprofit. Uh, which recently has been actually funded internationally because in, there's no national funding for that. And yeah, that, you know, that, of course, I was drawn to the fact that she was taking care of her mom, you know. Um, I did that before my mom passed away. So, you know, so there, like I said, we had much more in common and I'm not denying her trans experience, which is not uh, having walked on those shoes of any of my uh, of my protagonists of my films. But I, I went for her humanity, her candor, her ability to laugh, to see that, you know, the levity in her life and her obstacles and her challenges. So that has been really, really affirming for me and also to embrace my own femininity. You know, I, I was conditioned as a Catholic Peruvian growing up in a macho society to still be shamed of my feminine traits, you know, and now I don't care, you know, I'm like, 
you know, I, I can be very feminine and I can be very whatever, you know, when, when I want to be or just embrace all of it. So it's been a really learning, a good learning curve for me in my own, in my own, uh, you know, my own world, my own personality. Just to give a shout out, what's the name of um, Gabriela's nonprofit? Angel Azul which means um, blue angel. I just want to ask you about, uh, I'm totally mispronounced this because my Spanish is not so good. En el Fuego and El Fuego Dentro. That's um, your first film in the choir, which won the Outfest LA Award, Audience Award in 2007. And then the sequel to that, El Fuego Dentro, The Fire Inside. So um, tell us how you came to these projects. Well, uh, just to give you a little, background. So I started um, as a pre-med at Columbia. In my junior year, I decided to break my mom's heart because I said to the nurse, that mom, I'm not cut out to be a doctor. You know, that's mm -hmm. a lot of thing. I can't even pass a chemistry course. I, I've taken, you know, some playwriting courses. And mm -hmm. that's how it began, actually. I started directing at Columbia, a All theater. Right. Okay. And I was in theater for almost 15 years. Mm. I, I study everywhere in London, in Paris, you know, I, I work regionally. So I had a background of, of, of learning how to tell the story. Right. You know, and um, when I went to live, uh, I, had a, I had a partner that was Dutch, what is his Dutch, mm -hmm. and we actually got, um, you know, uh, married in the early 90s when you could do that in the Netherlands. And, uh, wow, wow. We lived, we lived together and... At the time, you could study anywhere in, well, you can still do it because it's a socialist country mm -hmm. in a way. Um, you could study anywhere, and I was given the opportunity to study Dutch, but also to study something else. So that's when I started taking courses in editing and filming with, you know, with digital cameras. Remember, this is the early 90s. Right, 93. yeah. Digital was just becoming a thing. Yeah, those cameras were very expensive. They were mm -hmm. like, you know, $10,000. $5,000 more. Wow, yeah. So I took that and then I, one of my assignments was to do the, because they did a lot of flat, flat pieces, but I like doing the, the real things. You know, like I would go to immigrant camps and talk to the LGBTQ people, refugees. Wow. From, from Kosovo, so, from Rwanda, okay. from Burundi, from any, any hot spot that the, the Dutch will take in as a refugee, I would go and make. And that's how I learned my love of, you know, talking to people and, and, you know, telling real stories, you know. Wow. So, like, during that time in the early 90s, so you mentioned Burundi and, Burundi and um, Kosovo. Um, were you filming, like, folks from the um, former Yugoslavia as well? Oh, yeah. In my, in my Dutch class, we had people from all over. You know, my closest people was this uh, per, uh, woman from Uganda, a journalist that escaped. Uh, I think it was Idi Amin at the time, who was in power, yeah, and, and she's still my friend, you know, uh, I helped her raise her little son uh, when she got divorced, and uh, now the little son is like, I don't know, 15, 16, and her daughter, who's um, now she just graduated from uh, Oxford uh, as a human rights lawyer. Yes, yeah, so, so what is her name? You mentioned she was a journalist. What's her name? Uh, Gladys Kihundu. I went to Peru after my uh, breakup, divorce from um, my ex. 
uh, just to hang out. And uh, I met a, a bunch of gay guys, uh, very closeted. Most of them, they're very closeted. And they live double lives. Um, and I wanted to make a film about that. About after living in a very uh, open and you know country, yeah, it, it was really a shock to my system that people could still live like that. You know, it also reminded me of the of the of the shame and oppression I had I had grown up. But nobody wanted to talk to me, at least not on camera. They will tell me all these horrible stories about police and entrapment and bribes and blackmail, but nobody wants to talk to me on camera. So I was like a little, you know, disappointed. And somebody at the gym said to me, I know somebody, someone that will talk to you. And that was Gabby, Gabby Marino, you know. So when I met her, I, was, I had this little handy cam. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, Tony. I told you, I had no idea. We spent like three or four hours talking, the, you know, how long the little videotape could take, the mini cassette. And she said, Oh, you know, we laughed, we cried. She told me about her entire life. She was 50 at the time, or maybe 46, 47. And she said, oh, you want to talk to some one of my friends? So she put me in touch with all, like three or four different trans women that she knew that, that were activists, someone younger, older. And then I got in touch with uh, a mother that was starting some kind of parents support group, you know? And so that became the film. I brought it back to, to LA, not knowing what I was gonna do with it. I didn't know any editors. I had just moved to LA, so I didn't know anybody. So I'm waiting in line to go to Fusion, to buy a ticket to Outpost Fusion. Yeah, so for um, those of you who don't know, Outpost um, Fusion is a, is Outpost Fusion LGBTQ people of color film festival and it happens in March and it showcases the work of people of color. And behind me, who happens to be, was Kim Yutani, who was one of the programmers at Outpass at the time. You know, she's the director of programming now at Sundance. Uh, and she said, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but did you just film trans women in Peru? And I said, yeah. And she said, she gave me her card and she said, well, you ever turn this film into, uh, you know, if this footage into a film, I would love to see it. You can even send me a rough cut. And now that was the moment where I had to look for an editor and um, I found two students that were just graduating from UCLA and we turned the film into this film that really opened up and started my career because it was, not only won the audience award, but it also, um, you know, it played like in almost 70 different countries around the world. Yeah, remember this is the time, this is 2007. Yeah, I want to get in, into that as far as a, uh, your, your, your filming of the trans experience over the years, but this is just like a note to all you young filmmakers out there. When you go to the festivals and speak about your films loudly, <laughs> yeah, and to anybody that wants anybody that anybody around you, they talk about it in line. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and then you too may get somebody's card who can help take you to the next level. <laughs> That's great. That's a great story. So the sequel El Fuego Dentro 
was five years later? Yeah, well, you know, after the success of En El Fuego, um, so let me just say, this is 2007. There was no Laverne Cox, there was no Post, there was nothing. It was, I mean, the, the trans documentaries that were coming at the time, they all focused on the surgery, hormones, all of that. So I made a documentary that talked about their lives, their activism, their everyday struggles, the challenge to keep their families together and to live their authentic lives uh, before even what people were talking about, you know, having any kind of uh, pride, I mean, trans pride or any of that. So at least in Peru. So it, it caught the attention of a couple of people. So I had a couple of projects that uh, we were planning to do that were also celebrating, uplifting the community, uh, especially some of the elders. We wanted to do, I remember, something to do about trans role models. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it fell through. And also my mom got sick. She got diagnosed with cancer. And I'm her only child, so I have to take care of her. She got the best of care and she was with me through the last moment, her last breath. And that was almost 10 years ago. So that's when I, I thought about like going back to Peru. And you know, it really moved me that uh, I had a memorial in Peru and all my trans friends from my first film came to it, you know? And this was putting my mom's friends who were in, the, in their 80s with trans people that they probably have never even met before, you know? And even my own friends from on school when I was in uh, elementary school meeting trans folks. And I, I, I was so moved by it that I said, look, I brought my camera, you know how I am. Uh, this was like months and months after my mom had passed. So I was a little over the, the grief and the loss. And I said, I'm going to capture this moment because things were happening actually in Peru that seemed to be really progressive. They had a mayor that was very LGBT friendly and we got invited to talk to one of the Congress people who wanted to pass a hate right, uh, hate crimes law and, and all of that. But I mean, just to make a, a long story short, none of that happened. They're still struggling. They cannot even change their, gen their name or the gender marker on their ID. So there's still nothing. There's no civil union, nothing. This is almost 10 years since that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's sad. It's really sad that they're still struggling as much as as, as they did ten years ago. It, so nothing, nothing has shifted or changed, unfortunately. No, I mean there's a little more visibility. There's a little more. Uh, uh, there's a congress here and uh, an event here that they get included, and like most of the the women who are activists in my first film have started their own, you know, small nonprofits, you know, like Gabi, uh, and they get to speak and all of that, but nothing that's really basic, you know, like to, to change your, your name, your yeah, like the, the how-tos of how to transition, essentially. It's not available, readily available to people. Yeah, I mean, you know, in Peru, everywhere you go to cast a check, to pay with a credit card, they ask you for your ID, you know, and it's not the same that's what you who you really are so it's always a challenge you know like I said we still when I walk with them we still get haunted we get insulted we go to restaurants and they don't want us to sit there you know and for me it's really uh, it's 
it's really hurtful, but I think they're used to it, you know. And that is even more painful to me that they're used to that kind of, you know, uh, um, discrimination. You know, it, it's just part of their DNA that they're going to be discriminated, you know. So when you say used to it, do you mean that um, they, you know, folks have uh, adapted to it or have they figured out ways to, to work work around it? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I think they are, you know, they just shake it off and said, oh, Dante, don't, don't think about it. You know, we'll go to somewhere, somewhere, you know. There are worse things that can happen. They can, you know, throw stuff at us or, you know, pull our hair or, Try to grab us, you know. So this is this is really nothing. And and the main thing, you know, Tony, is that because you can't change your name, I mean, even if you go to school, you can get your license because it's not concordant to who you are. So I still have friends who still have to do sex work because of it. You know, even though they have, I know one in particular. She studied to be a nurse. She got a scholarship to be a nurse. And I told her about my mom being a nurse, and she became a nurse. It's been at least three years that she got that degree, and she can't change. She can't use it because of the I, I, the situation with the getting the ID. Wow. It's, it's, mm. it's really, I mean, if you, and she's still very happy, and we hang out and all of that. I, I would be, like, so devastated, you know. So, you know, I take my hats off to the trans women who are living in countries like that. I mean, we're doing so much better here in California, even with every, every, you know, everything that's going on, even what happened yesterday with uh, taking the health care. I just read from Newsom that in California we don't, we're still going to be taking care of our, our trans siblings. Yesterday, uh, Friday, um, the current um, occupant of the White House, the predator-in-chief, um, reverse some of the Obama era laws that protected health care for um, for trans people, as well as um, I think there were some uh, anti-abortion rollbacks as well. Um, so, and it's pretty, it's pretty, um, it's heartbreaking um, because. I think in in some ways, particularly with the Obama presidency, the um, the the LA the um, rights for LG LGBTQIA folks really seem to advance. You know, particularly and most notably with the passage of the Marriage Equality Act by the well, the approval of marriage equality by our the Supreme Court at the time, um, as well as protections for trans folks in the workplace and healthcare, um, but those have been rolled back. And I think it's important for people to realize that, recognize that just because we get these rights, um, doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have to continue to fight for them. And I remember when I was a kid, talking to my grandfather uh, about the Voting Rights Act. So I was, I was raised in the South um, and I, I'm going to be 50 next year, oh my God. And um, I was the first person in my family to register to vote without any, any hindrance. And so in Georgia, if you are gonna be 18 by the time of the 
next election, whatever election is happening in the next um, uh, few months, you could actually, I don't know what it is now, but you could register to vote. So I, there was somebody at a high school registering people to vote. I went, got, gave a little ID, which was I think my learner's permit at the time and got that ID. And I remember showing it to my grandfather and he cried because he wasn't able to vote until the voting acts right was passed. But one time I was asking about them, like how come they just don't make that permanent? Um, like why do they have to keep passing, um, you know, different aspects of it? And um, he explained that some of it was because, you know, they were extending it to include, um, to include, um, you know, correction for some injustices, but also he said, because, you know, they could actually take that away at any time. Even though, you know, we rejoice um, marriage equality and rejoice the inclusion uh, in the protections of LGBTQIA folks um, and protections in the workplace and, and as far as healthcare, none of that is guaranteed. And with that, this current so-called president, we, we've seen the impact of that. So like, that's why um, we had to be constantly um, vigilant. I mean, the only thing I just want to add to it that, of course, is, you know, I read already this morning from ACLU uh, that it's going to be challenged, you know, nationally. But uh, like I said before, in California, they already have made, Newsom have made an announcement that, you know, uh, uh, that, you know, everything, the protections will remain as they always have been. Uh, I was just trying to make the, the not comparison, but just to, to show how different it's in other places, you know, I mean, within the United States, but also in, you know, in Latin America and Africa and Europe and all Middle East and all of that, yeah, Asia. So you have trans visible and then raising Zoe. Can you talk about those two? Uh, like I said, the, the success of En El Fuego showing trans Peruvian women living their lives authentically, no matter what, drew a lot of attention within the trans community in LA. So particularly, um, I remember Bambi Salcedo, which now she's a national, renowned trans Latina activist and has her own uh, uh, organization called the Trans Latina Commission. She came to one of my screenings at USC. I remember seeing her and I was like, I had met Bambi at a, actually at a, some kind of doc gig, which actually was something directed by some fader who's doing a disclosure now. Um, and was my first actually LA gig that I was paid for. And Bambi was there and, uh, sorry, I was aggressive with the other story. She was the only person in the room that came to us because I was just a PA and she introduced herself. So it always stayed in the back of my mind. It's like, oh, that woman is really something you know it's not like anybody else then i had seen bambi uh like this is before prop eight and she was like got on a truck in the back of a truck on a megaphone and she's speaking about supporting gay marriage and how it meant uh, how it affected the trans community and that was, and it was the only person who was talking about supporting you know because you know it's it's a complicated situation there so i'm not gonna get into that so then I saw her in my audience and I was like, oh my God, there is Bambi Salcedo. And so we talked and she told me, Dante, I'm organizing um, uh, from the Children's Hospital because she was working there. Uh, I, 
charity called Angels of Change. When I, I, create, I choose 12 of our kids, 12 of our clients, trans in the non-conforming, non-binary kids, and I create this calendar. And would you, would, would, you mind, would you like to come and film it so we can do a little promo for the next year? And uh, that's how our relationship began, our friendship. I was volunteering for her with my camera. Uh, and then, you know, after a couple of years, I had known her a little bit. I knew some of her stories. I knew uh, some of the challenges she had. You know, she was, um, she was in trouble with the law, with... Uh, immigration but I didn't know the whole picture so one day I'm um, we're just talking after some event and uh, her friend Roland Palencia who had known Bambi for 20 years uh, said you know I said no first of all they asked me like the usual question as doc filmmakers what are you doing next you know this is after my Peruvian film and I said I want to make a film about you <laughs> and she looked at me like no, no, no. I mean, I said, well, it took a, a few months of convincing her. She said, uh, as long as it's the film about my work. And I said, of course, you know. And luckily, I had found somebody that a dissertation on, on Bambi, which actually connected her life to her work. You know, the challenge that she had as a child being uh, a, a, a victim of sexual abuse, you know, her eyes, her criminal past, her addiction, her HIV um, diagnosis, all of that, the fact that she had been able to turn around her life completely uh, touches upon so many of the things that the community still struggles with. So I thought, let's make a film that has that emphasis of how her life has informed her activism of today. And, you know, as you can imagine, everybody in the community came to support the making of the film. It was the beginning of, uh, of crowds, crowdfunding. They kickstarted it. We did home, home parties. We did uh, restaurant parties to raise money to make the film. At the time, I didn't know anybody in the film community or the dog community. But I just felt that this, this woman had to have a, mil a film made out of, about her life. Right. How much money did you raise via Kickstarter? I don't know, maybe 7000 Okay, okay. Yeah, and then we raised the, the rest of the money, which was a very low budget. I think we didn't do more than 20000 to house parties and just friends of Bambi, you know, along the way. Some trans women she had helped, uh, the, the kids that she had helped that were like already in school and, you know, living their beautiful lives. And, you know, she opened me up, like, you know, having Bambi's, being part of Bambi's approval, being in her realm, really opened me up to so much of the, uh, so many of the activists in, in LA, you know, and even, you know, uh, nationally. Um, so, and actually I was able to be there for the, one of the first meetings of the Trans-Latina Coalition when it was only just a dream. So, I, you know, I always, I always tease her, you know, like, uh, who knew that this was going to become like the multi-million dollar uh, organization that is right now, you know, helping so many people, you know. And, um, and then just to make, make the whole story short, of course, you know, people love the film and still you know, shown in campuses everywhere. Um, she, for the premiere of the film at Outfest, uh, which was in 2013, 
she brought two guests, and the guests were Zoe Luna and her mom Ophelia. Okay, and that leads to yeah, <laughs> raising Zoe. <laughs> Zoe at the time was twelve years old. So you know, at the premiere, of course, you meet so many people, and it it it, it stayed in the back of my head, but I never thought, you know children you know i don't know about you know i know the perils of becoming a public figure and having your story out there so i it never crossed my mind that i wanted to make a film about them but then that same year in november you know that we remember all the trans folks that have been murdered that year and they had a vigil in west hollywood and the keynote speaker were zoe and ophelia they did a steering nine minute uh, talk about their life together and I was like you know my my skin just started like the hairs on my on my arm were like just oh, I don't know I just felt this electricity that was so genuine so charismatic and the love for both of them was so palpable and I remember telling my friend next to me and said I want to make a film about them and because also Ophelia from the very beginning, she reminded me of my mom. I always tell her that. And for her, you know, unbelievable, you know, acceptance of her daughter, her unconditional love. And I think it took a few months before I got the courage of telling her, you know, asking her and I said, do you mind if we follow you for a year and, you know, we try to make a film out of that? And she always says in the Q&As, actually, um, I always thought that Dante, you know, would just come one day and forget about us. You know, I never thought he was going to be. And every time, every time, every time Dante would call, I would be like, me and Saul would look at each other like, oh, my God, this is really happening. <laughs> so the movie, it's basically about one year in Zoe's life between 13 and 14. And that's when she started doing her, you know, her hormones. And <clears throat> so we have a bit in a children's hospital with Dr. Joe Olson. We have a bit about she becoming actually the LA Pride um, Grand Marshal with Troy Perry, which is like, I don't know if people know about Troy Perry, but he was he's an icon from the, of the movement and the founder of the NCC church. And it was funny to see both of them in, in the same float. And actually, I was on the float next to them, so I could film them. And just, just you know, I tried to incorporate as much as I could. Um, there was also a couple of trans teen suicides that, uh, that Zoe was a speaker. But also want to, you know, uh, show that she had friends and her sister is very supportive and consistent Letty. You know, and the film opened premiere at Outfest in 2016, and I'm still showing it everywhere. I, I take the film to, I uh, had subtitle in Spanish. I, I toured the country in Peru. I went to four different cities. So it wasn't even Lima. It was, cities are very conservative. Okay, so let's get to Miss Connie Norman, AIDS diva. Like I, I watched this last night and 
I thought that Connie, if she were here today, she would be out in the streets marching. That's right. She was just so incredible and unapologetically her, herself. And I just kind of wanted to set the stage for some of the younger younger folks. Ooh, I, I keep saying that, it makes me feel old. <laughs> particularly like when, uh, about the early days of the AIDS crisis. And I, I'm gonna kind of speak from my experience, kind of like outside of it. And I want, now Dante, I wanna talk you to talk about your experience, like back in the day. I remember seeing articles in newspapers, like in the early, in the early 80s, about this disease that was essentially killing gay men. So I'm about 13, 14 at the time. At that time, it was called, I think, GRID, gay-related immunodeficiencies syndrome yeah it was called grid and there were like multiple names for it before it um became named as as aids at that time ronald reagan was president and essentially all these the aids hit the gay community first and then it expanded into the, the hetero community um but at the time it was looked at as a quote unquote gay disease and Ronald Reagan as our president would not acknowledge it at all. There was no funding available for it. Um, in fact, it, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, he didn't really acknowledge it until the actor Rock Hudson um, got it. Cause I guess he was friends with Rock Hudson cause you know, they were like old Hollywood cause Ronald Reagan used to be an actor. And at that point, that is when they, the government, the US government began to um, acknowledge it um, but also, I remember the name, this kid named Ryan White, who got it. He got it through a blood transfusion. And uh, I remember there was a TV movie about him. And at that point, like, oh, like this little white kid who got the blood transfusion by like, nothing, uh, by no fault of his own. That, that was kind of how, how it was worded. Um, got it and there was like more sympathy around um folks um who had aids but watching this film um it, it I, the parallels of what's happening today were like very very staunch so okay we have this pandemic happening granted like different from um aids in that it's aids was stigmatized um because of the people who had it initially um and that stigmatization and that um that prejudice filtered into what care people got, or actually what care they did not get. Um, but you, when you look at ACT UP, which was one of the major um, organizations out there um, who was fighting for healthcare for aid for folks with AIDS, but also not only healthcare but universal healthcare. I did not, I did not know that piece, and that's something that comes in the film, you know, um, that comes out in your movie, Dante. But um, you have people marching with with a during a pandemic for their lives just like what's in a many ways like parallels what's happening today well i'm ashamed of admitting it i was actually in new york i was still at columbia uh, i think by 83 um i had already read the native but i had a, i was in a monogamous relationship with my first boyfriend and we were deadly ignorant and afraid of any, any illness. We were so afraid of it. Um, it came 
to my life directly when one of my roommates, uh, we moved out of, of campus and we had a, an apartment near Macy's. Um, uh, so two couples, two gay couples, young couples coming out of Columbia. One of them, one day he disappeared and his boyfriend said, oh, he went to visit his mom in Texas and we never saw him again. You know? And this must have been around 84, 85. And, you know, I had, like I said, I've been reading the Native, like, you know, you saw that we used some yeah, of the- Yeah, the magazine covers, the, yeah. Mm -hmm. The covers in the film. But I was just like, let's just do our own thing. Let's just focus on, uh, I was doing theater at the time and my ex wanted to be a, an actor. And he, of course, to be an actor and auditioning at the time with any kind of, uh, you know, HIV or illness, nobody wants to, first of all, nobody wants to know that you were a gay, if you're going to be in a soap or commercial. So he got to, you know, butcher up and audition and he worked a little bit on Wall Street. So he also very male dominated. He, so we were like really like in hiding, you know, I, I always tell, you know, like the film is really my redemption. I knew about those act up meetings and the actions they did inside St. Patrick's Cathedral and all of that. I never went to any of them. I didn't want to be close to any of them. I was, you know, I was petrified and ignorant and for a long, long time, you know, and I, after we broke up, I know I got tested and I was negative. Actually, was, I was in a study group. Uh, for the beginning of the GMHC, who was a gay men's health crisis. Uh, and I knew it was negative. Uh, I was informed of how to stay negative. And I, um, I tried to teach the people around me, you know, like my ex. And um, yeah, but it, it, was, it was a scary time, Tony. Uh, and I'm, like I said, I'm deeply ashamed of not even even going to a march, you know, now I've done so many times, not only for COVID-19, but before, you know, May 1st marches and Trans Lives Matter marches and when they have vigils for trans women that are being murdered. Uh, but back then I was not, I was not an activist. I was not into that. I was really focused on my getting ahead, getting my career in focus. And, and you know, I, I doing this film actually taught me that there were a lot of people like me. Yeah, I think it's important for people to, to talk about uh, talk about these things and how they arrive to the activism because it is, is, it is a process. And I think all of, all of us who are from marginalized groups have to deal with some like internalized, uh, you know, whether it's internalized homophobia or internalized racism, like because we grow up in this society that tells us we should not exist. So, and that, that, I think that's part of the healing is acknowledging, acknowledging that. So like, I, I so appreciate you being um, so honest about that. Well, you know, I, I have learned from the best. I mean, some of the amazing people that I have interviewed throughout my career, uh, and I can, you know, the camera can tell, you know, and one of the things I'm not to pat myself in the back, but I create an intimacy where people can tell me like Bambi did and, so in Ophelia did, and all of Connie's cohorts and, and members of ACTAP did, is because I, I, I can ask the questions with uh, authentic, 
not only curiosity, but with an empathy, you know. And, and uh, people have always remarked about that. You know, even my editor saying like, oh my God, you really got deep there. Now, what I put on, 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 on uh, you know, on the screen is something different, but there are things that happen that are left out on the, on the editing room that are very uh, moving, but they can also be, you know, kind of triggering when you, especially with the Sandy and Zoe film, because I knew they were going to be watching the film over and over again. I remember Bambi in the first few screenings, she would always cry and just walk out. And I was like, I didn't, you know, I, I, and I was very, very thoughtful and sensitive about what I was putting on screen. And you don't need to put, you know, all horrors and, you know, and harrowing episodes. You know, you can just uh, intimate that this is what happened, you know, with music, with images and all of that. With Connie, I just felt freer because, you know, she, passed away in 96. My first goal was to, first of all, uh, it was one of her friends who knew her intimately from the act up days that asked me, what are you doing next? You know, after Zoe. And he is the one that said to me, I didn't make a film about Connie Norman. And I was like, I, you know, believe me, I had heard about Connie Norman because actually Bambi in her place, there was a plaque that said that she had been given the Connie Norman Award. For, 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 for leadership in the trans community. So I always thought that, and I had seen a poster of her that was all pink. She had, she had a big afro. And I thought, oh, she's, a, you know, she's an African-American woman. And there was a connection with Carl Beam at the church, um, you know, Unity. So I always thought, and I had seen a picture of her with Jewel that was kind of like black and white. So I, I thought, oh, well, I'll branch out and, you know, leave my Latin community and do an African-American story. And then the, this, this, her friend sent me a couple of pictures of Connie. And, um, and then I saw uh, a video of her, the one that's with, uh, the, the one you saw with the, uh, all, you know, the right wing, you know, kind of Jerry Springer. Went. And I was like, she is white. Yeah, she's white. That's how, that's how I was like African American. Like, I didn't I didn't see that. <laughs> she, but she's badass as all hell. Yes. And I fell in love with Connie. I joined the alumni uh, page at Act Up LA alumni page, and um, a, a lot of her friends were just so. I mean, they just gave. Me, they sent me. They mailed me. I met them tapes and tapes of Connie in all kinds of situations. The arrests, the demonstrations, the, the Hawaii, which is very private. A lot of people never seen that. There were very few people that got invited to, to Hawaii. Um, you know, the fishing trip, which is lovely. You know? Yes, yes. Because there are these really um, great moments in the film that show like, because so, obviously sometimes when you're focusing on a film about activists, it's all about their activism. As you don't really kind of see them doing their like everyday lives. So, like we see them in like fierce, fierce mode all the time. And those moments were really like intimate and also really great, you know, because we all, but also I think it shows the importance of like those of us of, who engage in activism, whatever way that is, that it's important to kind of take a break from that. So, can I just say a little bit about, about the, the fishing trip? So 
also I think the fishing trip and the whole film, because you see, and, and it still gives me goosebumps. You see all this beautiful, I'm sorry, I'm beautiful young men and women who are long gone. But at that time, somebody captured them as vibrant, as recklessly radical, enjoying their lives. And they're not here just like Connie. Her humor, I, I try to capture her humanity, her humor, but most of all, her dauntless activism. She cared for people so much. You know, she, yeah, she put her own health at bay, at risk, because she knew she only had this amount of time to do what she needed to do for her community. And especially as she was getting older, and as you heard in the Sheila Kiel thing, her trans community, who was not visible at the time, who were not counted in clinical, clinical trials, and you know, and you cannot even go to a place where you can, as you heard Valerie Spencer mentioned, you have to be transitioned to get care. She made sure that there were not just the, the protests that we're having right now, but there were policies in place that were trans-specific. And I think that's why her story and her legacy shouldn't be, should be visible as much as anybody else's because she put her life on the line for her community, you know? And, and she belongs in that pantheon. I know she didn't want to be a hero, although she loved the spotlight, you know, that's why she was self-appointed diva. But she cared so deeply for the, about the next generations, you know? And, and I think that's what really moved me and drove me to make this film and to make it, you know, a gift to the community, especially this year. I wanted to also to be a film about making people going to vote, to register to vote, because speaking up, as you saw in the last few weeks, matters a lot. In prepping for this interview with Dante, I was really surprised that I had not heard of Connie Norman. Even though Dante never met her personally, this film will go a long way in solidifying her legacy. Connie knew how to get in the way. She made a point to disrupt people who attempted to remain comfortable in their bubbles of complacency. A complacency that is often couched in a frame of politeness and surface level empathy. Connie didn't have time for any of that then, and we certainly don't have time for it now. Say no to making people comfortable at the expense of your own discomfort. Speak the truth, name the problem, and demand and make changes wherever and whenever possible. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. The What's Up with Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Shumas and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast.
Today's program was hosted by Tony Bell and produced and edited by Ronell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas.